Hello, thanks for listening to this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman, and this week I've been speaking to Dr. Dario Linares, Principal Lecturer in Contemporary Screen Media and Course Leader on Digital Film. Dario's also a presenter of the popular Cinematologist podcast, with podcasting a key part of his research. My central task is leading the the digital film course. Uh, I've been here four years now. I've been course leader just for one year. I undertook quite a substantial rewrite of the course along with the team, of course, but led a kind of redevelopment of the digital film course, which had moved, which has now completely moved from Hastings, where it was based before, over to uh, the Edward Street campus in in Brighton. So, yeah, I'll lead the course and then I teach on the theory aspect of that course because we're a, a combination degree, so it's 50% practice, 50% theory. And I, I do the, the film criticism, history, film philosophy aspect of, of the course alongside with the, the sort of management course leadership type role. Mm. We've got a lot to talk about. But I think we sure. should begin by talking through how you got here in the first place. Can you sort of whiz us through your career up to this point? Oh, wow. It's okay. sort of a whistle-stop tour, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, I did my undergraduate degree when I was 25. So I was a very late bloomer. I went to Sheffield Hallam and did film studies there. And it was quite a, a, a sort of seminal moment, really, the the, the first year in uh, at university. I kind of, I'd, I'd had a whole other career. I was in kind of like catering and leisure and this kind of thing. And I just thought I didn't want to do that anymore. Went to university. Probably if I, if I went back now, I might do something slightly different. But I really enjoyed the atmosphere of university. Within six months, I was like, God, I can't believe I hadn't been here before. You know, I was 25. So I did three years undergrad at Sheffield Hallam doing film. And then I continued, did an MA in cultural studies back at Leeds. I'd stayed in, that's where I'm from originally. So I stayed at Leeds because I could work part-time in the evenings, do my MA during the day. And then I just carried on from from there. Had another, I had a year in between when I was uh, saving up and trying to get some funding to do a PhD, but never got some funding. So I just took the plunge, probably the riskiest thing I've ever done, which was try to go into a PhD self-funded. I was doing it part-time over five years of paying for it on credit cards and help from parents and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, got got through it in the the five-year period. Uh, I was teaching a lot at Leeds Beckett at the time and Leeds University sort of doing part-time. So all the way through my PhD, I was I was sort of teaching part time, passed in in two thousand and nine, and then a couple of years later, I got my first full time job, which was down at Falmouth. Um, again, that was another um, film degree, but a, a film combination degree. So I've always sort of taught on practice theory courses. So I did four years down there, which was a great kind of first job, really. Big course, lots of you know a lot of work, a lot of administrative work, a lot of teaching, big courses, and then applied for the job in Brighton four years ago and uh, yeah moved up moved up here when I when I get that originally like I say to Hastings campus but then obviously now that's closed down and we've moved over to Brighton we're going to talk about podcasting shortly sure nice discussion about that but I, I want to start as well with the subject matter for your podcast cinematologists yeah where it comes from your interest in in film, in where, film yeah. where where does that come from then what it's interesting I mean just looking back in hindsight mm. I mean I I, I was just I'd gone through a career where I was kind of unhappy with what I was doing and I wanted to do something that I thought I could enjoy. I mean, really, when you think about it, it's especially it seems even more crazy now in this day and age where everything is about sort of employability and your trajectory into the world of work. And I was just like, I just want to do something that I 
I kind of like and not worry too much about the uh, what the employability. So, you know, the, there isn't really a lot of work for film critics out, out there. I mean, you know, it's a very hard um, place to get into. And that was what I was interested in was the was the watching and the writing and the criticising of movies. And it's funny, it's like thinking back now, I don't know why I didn't really take on much of the kind of practical element of it. I think underneath it all i was i was more interested in in the kind of writing aspect of of film criticism and it kind of bears out with some other elements of my career which we can talk about later on but um yeah i um i very much became interested in non mainstream non hollywood movies um and i think i i mean Back in the day when when there was only three channels, for example, film was kind of like a key part of BBC Two and then Channel Four when they came along. And I just remember sort of becoming more and more interested in 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 films that were slightly outside of the mainstream, off kilter, a bit weird, European, staying up late on a on a on BBC watching on BBC Two, you know, Alex Cox's movie drum series and then uh, Mark Cousins and Mark Kermode series that they had on on uh, on on TV, and it was sort of that that sense of a an education in film as a as an art form as much as anything else. And then I I went to film university. I don't want to call it film school, and I got to university to study film. It kind of broadened again my horizons, and and particularly when I started reading a lot of the textual analysis and the philosophy around film. I realized that a lot of the films that I liked when I was a kid were kind of read in really interesting and strange ways. And I went back to look at them and, th- and thought to myself, wow, I never, I've watched this before. And I never thought about it in that way. You know, it was, it was really kind of fascinating, especially being a straight white man. You kind of encounter all of these different approaches to films that you just take as read as being, you know, reflecting you in a certain way and actually how kind of problematic or looking at them at a different a- a- angle, what they what they kind of signify, you know, in wider society or, or in just in terms of the language of cinema itself. That was kind of like my starting point. But then I became more and more interested in kind of the act of watching and how, particularly in recent years, the, the shift over into the digital age has changed what we understand by the cinematic you know how we watch, why we watch, um, how film in, is integrated with other kinds of media. All of those kind of, those kinds of elements have become interesting to me, and I suppose that maybe kind of podcasting has has kind of been an element of that. I would say your profession is now in film studies. Yeah. So how have you seen how it's perceived to study this sort of shift? From when maybe you studied it to, yeah. to to now. Well, I just don't. I don't think that cinema has the cultural significance that it it used to. Cinema was always seen as very different from television. It was the, you know, the higher form, let's say. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I mean, I give you give you examples. We have students who come to open days for the course, and you ask what their favorite film is, and some of them will say a TV show. And they won't make any distinction between the two. And filmmaking, I think, is is now much more of a broad category in terms of production of audiovisual content. I think a lot of young people see it that way rather than, you know, the idea of a sort of two-hour mainstream narrative film. I think there's lots of different interpretations of what filmmaking is and what it's actually for. I think particularly in terms of the courses that I've taught on historically they have been less kind of film studies orientated. I mean, and, and, and at Brighton, we've got a film and screen studies course, which again, marries film studies and screen studies, sort of broadening out that category. 
The biggest change, I think, is that notion that the, the theory and the practice have to be integrated. So whenever now I'm teaching theory, I'm much more trying to think about not necessarily its direct practical application, but how is that recognizable to a contemporary student? For example, if you're talking about something like semiotics or the auteur theory or, you know, any other kind of aspect of, of film philosophy, uh, let's say, if you're talking about kind of the ethics or political philosophy or, or aesthetics, all of these things, I think, have to be shown to have a, an influence in the contemporary mindset, I think, of, of young people, to be, particularly if you're talking about the uh, students coming on onto a degree to learn about film. Yeah, and we've got students that have just uh, recently graduated mm. at our ceremonies. I imagine that's always a proud moment. Uh, we've got students that are about to start and looking into uh, coming here as well. How would mm. you describe your approach to teaching on your course? Again, yeah, I, I think it's very much that that idea of an integrated course of pre of practice and theory. Very much on digital film, it, particularly since the rewrite, we have been trying to move slightly away from using references that students won't necessarily recognise. I mean, there are courses out there that are very much, you know, the history of film and going back to, you know, studying the, the, the canon, as it were, whether it's Orson Welles or Hitchcock yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. But we're much more focused, I think, on trying to create students or give the give the potential for students to be able to engage in their own creativity through through film so there's an element in which they do have to understand the language of cinema they have to, to understand the practicalities of of filmmaking in terms of you know using the kit developing techniques of editing and sound recording and all of those kinds of things but i think even for me when i'm doing my one of my optional modules is philosophy on screen it's giving the tools for the students to be able to understand their own position within the world and then their choice of outlet for that is filmmaking. So it's kind of like instead of sort of, I mean, there's vocational elements of the course where, you know, if you want to go into the industry, there are pathways by which the modules that we provide will help you to do that. But it's that sense of helping students to make sense of their own position and their own interests within the world and then they can utilize film and writing about film and screenwriting for example because that's another element of the, of the course to be able to express themselves in that way yeah i, I guess uh, a lot of students may come here with they might know where they roughly where they want to go they might want mm. to go into filmmaking or they yeah, may yeah. want to go on into studying something specific for their sure. research they kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. do you find that that is the way you kind of yeah have i mean going both directions. to be honest i think it, it, it Less over time, I would say that less and less students are, 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 have made up their mind before they come. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of students co uh, come and they they want that opportunity to 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 engage with a range of possibilities, you know. And I think that that's what's great about our course is, is that we have a kind of everybody's coming in at the same level attitude. You could have done some filmmaking or media studies, let's say at, at A level, but if you haven't done any of that, we still start from the very, very beginning. And then as you go into level five or the second year, you have the opportunities to specialize more, to take more optional modules. And by the time you get to, to level six, what we have is um, project work in its entirety. So there's no individual taught modules at level six, which is the final year. You all students do both a major practice project and a dissertation. So if you are interested in going into the film business in some way, shape or form, you do have that practice showreel or the technical skills that you will need for that. But 
at the end of the degree, if if you feel that media or filmmaking is not for you, you do have an academic project there and a, a substantial one. Because I think any employer still recognises the the value of a major project like a dissertation. A 10,000-word dissertation says that you can commit to a, a major piece of work. Yeah, sure. Um, we're gonna, again, we are going to talk about podcasting, but can we talk about some of your research um, within film then? What sort of things have you, have you focused on? What sort of things do you have a particular interest in? Well, going back to my PhD, my PhD was actually on the astronaut as a cultural figure. So my, my PhD was kind of cultural studies with a film bent, but every every chapter in the in the PhD was looking at the representation of the astronaut in contemporary Western culture. What is it about this figure that we gravitate towards as being a representation of everything that's great about humanity? But when you look at, at that, that is underpinned by certain types of ideologies. For example, the notion of Western capitalism underpins all of that. And, uh, you know, things like Judeo-Christian values, the notion of the family man, all of those kinds of things. And really, when you think about it, the ideal of masculinity being that that kind of symbol, having that kind of symbolic value that represents society as a whole and and challenging some of the the problematics around that. So I think then my, my early work in 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 sort of uh, analysing that was much very much around the representations of gender, race, and class, but specifically looking at masculinity. And I suppose it goes back to my childhood and some of the stuff I was talking about before, where a lot of the films that I just took for granted as as signifying what it means to be a man were were being were being sort of challenged and and a lot of my analysis was was around that and then the theoretical underpinning of of my research was very very much around postmodernism and and challenging the ideas of there is a direct correlation between what you see and what you understand and how we take for granted notions of truth and identity and all of those kinds of things so so looking at films in that in that kind of way how does it create a version of the world that we kind of take for granted and what is it not telling us or what is it kind of changing about what re- the reality of the world is is out there. As I said before, I kind of moved into in, into what would be kind of called the phenomenological term. The, the idea of film watching is a process. So it's a kind of apparatus, if you think about it, kind of historically and, and traditionally. We go to the cinema, we sit in this concentrated space. And then when the digital age comes along, how does that change the, the 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 modes by which we engage with cinema? How does that change how we understand what it, the cinematic actually means? So those were sort of un- underpinnings of of a lot of the the writing that 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 I was doing, and more and more I was sort of becoming interested in cinema as a mode of communication, and then that moved across a little bit into kind of other areas of or what does it mean to communicate? How do we communicate? truth and i suppose then that that provided a kind of segue over into into podcasting as a form and the use of the use of sound it's quite a it's quite a broad question i guess this because you do an entire you you're some of your research and entirely focused on it but yeah, yeah. I, I mean there's a there's um lots of people like mark Homo who've been saying that you know probably eventually we're going to get to a point where all films are going to have a, a cinematic a release in a cinema at the same time as you can watch yeah at, at home do you see it going that way then and is that kind of yeah, I mean, some people want that big screen experience, obviously. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's interesting because, again, you've got to be careful of of sitting in the Western world and seeing everything that that mm. that is going on as being universal. When really, this is what's going ha- happening in America or in in the United Kingdom, for example. I mean, you know, one of the big 
changes, I think, over the last 10, 15 years has been that the, the markets for auditory and viewing are now much more in, in, in Asia and in China. So, you know, cinemas are being built, you know, constantly over there. And the biggest audiences for going to the cinema uh, are in that part of the world. So if you kind of take it collectively, you could say, well, actually, numbers of people visiting the cinema are actually going up rather than rather than dropping. But I mean, it's interesting in terms of a lot of the students that I teach, there isn't that drive towards going to the cinema as a unique experience in the way that someone like myself would still defend the idea that actually in its idealized form, you've got to go to the cinema because you have that kind of blocking out of the of the rest of the world. And it, interesting, I think that becomes even more profound in the age of mobile phones, the age of, of social media, that, that that sort of sacrosanct environment is provides you with a, a place by which you can uh, immerse yourself into the filmic world, perhaps. But I don't think that that... I think that does resonate with some students, don't get me wrong, but I think across the board, I don't think it... It doesn't constitute that kind of significance in people's minds any, anymore in terms of... Like, say, for example, a film that gets released and has a massive cultural influence across the board. I think that's very few and far between, whereas I think any new release by a big director sort of in the 70s and 80s had that kind of significance. It would be something that, that people would go and see and it would be something that, that, that people would talk about. But I think, you know, cinema is battling with so many other types of media engagement these days. It's just one, uh, you know, one, one of many, I think. Mm. Okay, let's talk about podcasting because it's, okay. it's a bit a bit meta, really. You, you present um, a podcast called uh, The Cinematologist. That's right. Where did that idea come from? And did your your interest and in research into podcasting, did it come from it or before it? No, it definitely came afterwards. Yep. I mean, the what happened was that when I used to work at Falmouth, I had a colleague called uh, Neil Fox, and we, we struck up a friendship when he came. He came, I think, to the university about two years after me. And we struck up a friendship, and we had a lot of agreement over the kinds of films we liked, but also disagreement. But we had a way of working through our disagreements and agreements of why we enjoyed certain films or what we thought about certain films. And I, I think... Actually, I think we were in the pub with colleagues and stuff one day, and me and him were just back and forth, and and people and you know people say, "Oh, you you guys really get into it, don't you, about films like this?" And and it was kind of like, "Yeah, yeah, we do." But at the same time, if you think about uh, the cinema, our cinematologist podcast started around 2014, 2015, which is when podcasting really started to explode. Mm. So if you think of the the uh, the series Serial, which is often kind of you know in podcasting kind of uh, context is is seen as this seminal program where the crossover to the mainstream occurred, and I think for us a lot of the most interesting discussion and debate around film, but also politics, culture, society, art, music, was going on on podcasting because it allowed for us it kind of allows this expanded discussion that isn't tied to a um, tradition of of media let's say for example in radio there is a traditional broadcast flow and a schedule and therefore the elements of what makes radio radio comes out of the of that particular kind of structure that format plus if you wanted to work with sound you know if you weren't on the bbc you were nowhere or you know obviously in the uk there's commercial stations but the bbc is is everything when it comes to broadcast in the uk especially speech yeah yeah especially speech and also i think the part of it was that there was a combination of both in terms of a media 
a media communication platform, an environment, and the fact that we could do something, record it and get it out there using social media and using the internet as a distribution channel. It offered so many possibilities that we just thought, oh, we're going to try and do this. And also, I think, you know, without going on a long monologue, what we what we realized was there was a lot of podcasts out there that didn't really relate their output to a specific cinematic environment. So we, we really wanted to have live recordings that were based around an actual film screening. So with an audience where we would introduce the film and then we'd talk to an audience afterwards. So it kind of, it traded on that joy that we have of the film's finished and we all want to say something about it. So it sort of uh, related back to that. So yeah, that was the kind of context. By, but we never really had any pretension that this was going to like change my academic trajectory or become a, a kind of research output really at the beginning. Podcasts have boomed. And, I, mm. and basically in the sort of late... 2000s there was a bit of an, a spike in it and then yeah. it kind of went back down again and then yeah, they yeah, just yeah. went massive and it kind of resembles a little bit the um the boom that blogs had in the early yeah. 2000s really everyone can do a podcast yeah but how easy did you find it to do and how did you try and differentiate between sort of you know someone that just picks up a microphone and wants to start chatting well i personally didn't find it particularly easy at the beginning especially when it came to a the the relaxed nature of, of presenting or speaking mm on audio i think that takes a little bit of getting used to and a little bit of practice also i mean letting go for example of your accent as i mean nobody likes to listen to their own voice and particularly me i feel i've got a very overtly yorkshire accent i mean it's it's been tempered a little bit i think over time doing doing the work that i do in in academia i mean students from everywhere have got to understand what i'm saying so it's clipped a little bit but then also you realise when you're speaking, again, I just did it then, you have so many qualifications and changes and, and movements backward and forward. And one of the things that I do, for example, is I start a sentence, then put in another sentence as a qualification and then come yeah. back to a sentence later on. Now, if you wrote that on a page, it would just look like gibberish. But it's in being able to sort of embrace that messiness and embrace the ers and the ahs and, you know, kind of. I mean, we, we go through and try and edit a lot of that out. And and I think that's one of the good things about podcasting is that you can actually streamline them and frame them and and you can put as much production value in as you want, really. I mean, we were quite keen that we that we had a flow and it was I mean, we have interviews and like I say, we have live recordings. But then Neil and I, we we structure the podcast where we contextualize everything that's that's being said and, and try to open it into new avenues of thought. So it's, it, we were always trying to marry the idea of just being film fans, but with our, our academic expertise, let's say, but trying to make that as accessible as possible and also having interesting interviews on there and the discussion of the because sometimes audiences will say things and you're like, oh, wow, I never thought about it that way. I mean, it's really, really interesting stuff. So... Yeah, I mean, it's always evolving. I think we've we you know we've had lots of different types of episodes. I mean, we've done ones that cover film festivals. We had we we made an experimental one, which was like a like like almost like an audio essay, like a sound collage. And we're going to do more work around that area. I think uh, I think going forward. But podcasting now is at the point where everybody wants a podcast, you know, yeah. <laughs> and everybody's trying to monetize them, which is extremely difficult. And we've never seen it, and we've never really thought about it in that in that vein it's always been an adjunct to our general interest in film and also you know our, our work as academics well, i was going to ask you about that actually with um with monetizing podcasts i mean 
where do you think podcasting is going to go? Because when I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to get into radio. Yep. But I was told not to get into radio because radio was a dying format. This yep. is before podcast became a big thing. Now yep. it's, I mean, podcasting is a form of radio. It's a free form of radio yep. as well. It's, and you have freedom to do it. It mostly is free. Mm. In this country, obviously, we have the BBC and a lot of podcasts will come out of the BBC and they'll often be free and often be some of the best in the business. Yep. So trying to get people to pay for podcasts is it's quite a tough thing to do, isn't it, going forward? Because there's always going to be a good alternative somewhere else. Whereas a lot of the time to watch the best TV, you have to have the subscription to the best to multiple channels. Yeah, and, and I think it's funny. But I mean, podcasting was sort of the term was first coined in about 2005, but the iTunes infrastructure came online in 2004. So podcasting is what, 15 years old? And it is like in its troublesome adolescent years. Mm. So there's this... There's what has been coined the the, the um, platform wars going on right now. So you have startup companies like Luminary, for example, who are trying to create what they call a uh, a Netflix for podcasting, where you have a subscription, and they've they've signed up ta- talent like Trevor Noah and Russell Brand, the two of the the sort of big names, where they they've already got established podcasts and they've brought them in into their platform, which has this gatekeeper subscription around it. So if you want to listen to those the, those guys, you're going to have to pay for the Luminary subscription. Now, again, podcasting has a history of being free. It's part of a, the, the sort of blogging open source philosophy, let's say, for want of a better word. Um, and I know that, like, say, for example, um, the BBC have in the last six months or so sort of they've withdrawn some of their content from Google Podcasts. So there's this sense that the BBC, through its BBC Sounds shift, that the way that they've rebranded all of their sound content through the through the BBC Sounds kind of name, they're trying to kind of ring fence in their way the content that they put out. So there's this sense now of intellectual property that's coming into podcasting that wasn't part of it. And I think one of the one of the issues is that one of the things that made podcasting inter- interesting was that Apple set up the iTunes infrastructure and anybody could upload. And you couldn't make money from it. Mm. So why did Apple do that? I mean, they're a company who's interested in making money. The re- th- what they tried to do was use that as a feature to sell more I- iPods, as it was at the time. You know, so, so it's part of Steve Jobs' end-to-end encryption. He was interested in selling the hardware, but the software was kind of up to you. So that unique kind of happening, as it were, is what created podcasting in the form that it that it kind of developed. So you could have, you know, really high production values podcasts alongside some some guy in his bedroom just wittering on. And if it, anything that was good could get discovered and then become something big. Whereas I think now, you know, podcasting is in this phase where people have recognised that there is a, an outlet for it, whether it's direct monetization or as a kind of long tail or an adjunct to other, other media that's going out there. So people are looking for those kinds of ways to utilise podcasting as in, in terms of part of a media production out, output, particularly in it, in, you know, corporations or media bodies who who are trying to invest in podcasting in various kinds of ways and and look for the ways in which it can be monetized mm. it's, it's quite a new format podcast like we're saying is mm. it's, it's not very old at all it mimics a lot of people's behavior of watching tv or film it's you know appointment to view is is, is really starting to yeah, 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 yeah. To, to, to die out a little bit do people really understand a lot of people understand what a podcast is unless you're really into them the reason I ask that is because a lot of people will come up to me. I have a background in radio and they'll say to me, 
I need to do a podcast. Can you give me some advice? Yeah. And we'll get five, 10 minutes into the conversation about what they want. And I'll say, what, what is a podcast though? What's the difference between podcast and radio? Yeah. And, and, and so because of that, I think a lot of people just think that when it comes to monetizing podcasts, people just think it's yeah, yeah, actually yeah. just a radio show that's then top and tailed and whacked on the yeah, internet. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that is, that is what it is. Yeah, and, it because, is. and BBC Sounds is going to have their in this country it has a has a big monopoly on things and they'll be pushing it out on every radio station that you're listening to so a lot mm. of people think that is what podcast is yeah yeah well the thing is i mean it's like any media really there are definitional criteria that you can argue over i mean there are radio study scholars who say that that podcasting isn't anything new it's just radio repackaged mm. or radio uh, through a different technological mechanism for distribution you know and all of the all of the kind of aesthetic audio aesthetic possibilities that you that you might think podcasting has created have already been done before in the history of radio at some at some point so there is that argument that that that's out there and i think that the the take up of radio is it's getting more and more mainstream now i mean i think you know the market in america is a, a, is an awful lot bigger i mean i used to be a huge advocate of the bbc until i started doing my own independent podcasting and then i realized just how much oxygen the BBC sucks out of anybody who who wants to do anything independent. You know, if you're not on the BBC, you are kind of nowhere. I mean, yes, you can talk about Capital Radio, you can talk about XFN, you can talk about commercial and, and community broadcasting, which is huge, has a huge history and a huge aspect of, of, I think, you know, British social life that I think is often is often kind of ignored. And it's ignored because the BBC is this, is this behemoth. But I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding or non-understanding of what podcasting is i mean when we go to the like we do the live tapings at cinemas for example when i'm giving the my introductions and telling them about the podcast i try to explain as much as i can about where you can download it and then i still have people coming up and say just just what is a podcast and you literally have to get your phone out and say look give us your phone and i'll i'll put a, a software capture app on there and then you can download it and i think that's one of the one of the biggest issues that podcasting still has and will continue to have is discoverability so you've got to get past the barrier of how simply how to download one and then how you how do you discover new ones so again that's one of the things that's happening now where the the big corporations or big institutions if you're talking about the bbc the entry points to listening is just one click you know, you press one button on your radio and the BBC starts coming at you. Whereas listening is an actual labour when it comes to podcasting. You have to find the app, you have to then find the shows, and then you have to go a process of through a process of curation. And again, you know, you could you could argue that this is part of one of the problematics of the internet more broadly, where that the the more that that you engage, the actual narrower the field of cultural impact that there is that has on you. So say algorithms will be out there. Say if you like this, then you'll like that. So you end up with actually, with all this expanse of the internet, you end up with a real sort of narrow selection of what you actually listen to or engage with. Yeah. Same same as, same as the case with films. If you look at the Netflix and yep. Amazon Prime lists, as it yeah. were. You may end up making, making one mistake with your film when you yeah, yeah. on Netflix and you've got <laughs> similar films you don't want to watch yeah, ever yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. Um, okay, what, what have you got planned for your podcast then for the rest of the year? What, have you got any big plans on, on the way? Um, well, we we record because I I was uh, directing a film philosophy conference over the summer. We interviewed a load of the the presenters 
on that. So we're going to stitch that together into a two-part episode on on the Film Philosophy Conference. Um, we've got we partnered up with the BFI on their musical season. So they 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 often do seasons around particular genres. So they, they had a sci-fi one. The last one was comedy. Uh, which we did two or three episodes on, but they've got a musical season coming out, so we're going to have a an episode on that. I'm going to do a sports documentary episode. We haven't done a sports doc yet, and I'm kind of in two minds whether I want to show When We Were Kings, which was the Muhammad Ali documentary, or Senna, which is the Asif Kapadia yeah. um, doc. Um, so there's going to be an episode on that. We, we may be teaming up with a, a another podcast called The Projections, which has got two female hosts, and obviously me and Neil are two male hosts, and we might do a sort of joint projections, cinematologists kind of hook up and answer various questions about film and sort of have a panel discussion. So that's on the cards. Um, there's a couple of other interviews that are lined up. with. I mean, we often do kind of long-form in- interviews with academics, filmmakers, cri- um, critics. Neil's just got in touch with a, an agency, actually, that's got a raft of people that they work with. So we're hoping that that's going to be accessed to, to maybe slightly uh, slightly bigger names that, that we may be able to get on the show. So, uh, yeah, that's what's... Well, I'm, I'm actually... Neil's, uh, Neil's coming over to talk about an AHRC, a funding bid we've got for academic podcasting. We're going to put that in. That's another big big element of the research part of podcasting that's coming up next. And we're probably going to have a discussion about the, the schedule for the uh, the up-and-coming season. Because we take a break over the summer, July and August, we don't tape anything. Because po- podcast listening goes through the floor in uh, the summertime when everybody's on holiday. Yeah. Uh, it would probably be uh, remiss of me not to ask, uh, what's, what film has been has really stood out for you? This year, I mean, oh, what, this what, year. What, should, what should people be um, catching up on? Well, I mean, my favourite film of the year has been um, High Life, which is Claire Denis' sci-fi. So it's, uh, you know, a real kind of philosophical sci-fi that lends from people like, like Tarkovsky and, uh, you know, and, and um, a little bit of sort of 2001 Stanley Kubrick and that, that kind of thing. But it's also got, you know, real kind of psychological... I don't know fantasy surrealist elements to it. It was really kind of up. I mean, and again, it's very, it's very highbrow, very cerebral type stuff. So it was right, right up my, uh, my, um, right up my street. You know, when, when Juliet Binoche is is being a kind of witch in space and, <laughs> and and kind of enchanting Robert Patterson, I was kind of all in from the start. Yeah, that was uh, that was really worth uh, really worth seeing. And and again, just with the space theme. Last week I saw Apollo Eleven, which. Is the documentary which just using um, footage that has been remastered and also new found footage of the the uh, obviously the the moon landing which had its fiftieth anniversary which obviously tailored right back into my PhD so I might end up writing a new new article possibly on on uh, these new films that have come out around the the, the moon landing like First Man for example mm. you mentioned about how you have a very particular interest in films going back with these sort of independent kind of films do you yeah. feel like you can enjoy any blockbuster big blockbuster oh films, yeah or has I there mean, been ones that you've really yeah i mean the, the the issue for me is that it's almost as if there is no conversation outside of that especially especially if you're on social media it's just again like you're talking about the oxygen of discussion it's just so much around specific big tentpole films and i'm not i'm afraid a marvel comic book adaptation kind of person i mean my girlfriend likes them and, you know, she, she won't watch them with me because we sit down because I'm like, who's that? Who are they? And, and which, you know, and you've got to have watched like oh, 10 yeah. films before you yeah. can get to the next one. I mean, it's even more than that. To me, it's more about can a film stand alone on its own merits? And I don't want to have to deal with, I mean, it, it's almost as if films have become like TV serials now. You can't watch, 
you know, this film that's cost $250 million and you, unless you've watched 10 films beforehand. And I don't, that doesn't interest me at all. But having said that, like, say, for example, I have to admit, I really enjoy the Mission Impossible films. I think they're excellent value for money. And also, I, I understand the world because it's kind of like, it is, you know, it's set in, a, in the present day, in the here and now, in the sort of, you know, espionage, surveillance culture that we all are a part of. So I understand that world and there's an entry point to it for me whereas there isn't for the uh for the for the marvel films as well the comic book films i I really enjoyed mad max fury road when that came out a big blockbuster that's part of a franchise but i thought that stood on its own merits absolutely perfectly you know what i mean it was it was a brilliant film in its own right i thought well so many people hadn't even seen any of the originals no no exactly absolutely right and to be honest with you one of the films that surprised me over the last year was a star is born i've seen the barbara streisand version and i I think i've seen the the earlier one which is judy garland isn't it and then i was actually on on the plane to malaysia where i'm I'm, i do a a kind of external validation for a university that's over there in penang and i thought oh, i'm gonna sit down and watch a star is born at like two o'clock in the morning while, while the plane's flying overnight and I just couldn't believe how good it was and how well directed it was, how well acted it was. And when I say well acted as well, it was the, um, God, I forget the actor's name now. It's just completely gone Bradley off. Cooper. Bre- right? Sorry, yeah, well, well reminded. That's yeah, the film still. I literally scholar. watched it at a weekend. Oh, right. <laughs> and I was so amazed at how much I bought into that character. As much as Lady Gaga is the singer, you know, is actually the sort of playing almost herself in a certain, a certain vein. But I bought him as that kind of, you know, slightly over the hill, you know, alcoholic country star. And, and the the whole section where he invites her to, to come to the concert and then pulls her up on stage is almost done in an entire sequence. And then the one take when it go when she comes up on stage is is done so incredibly well. That film is exactly what that film needed to be. And if you compare it, in my opinion, to something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which I think is absolutely terrible, I think that that, that you watch those two films side by side and one is an absolutely brilliant piece of cinematic art and the other is 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 almost kind of... I mean, yeah, I, I think Rami Malek maybe you could say does a good job, but it's an impersonation and it's it's almost cartoony, cartoonish in comparison to A Star Is Born, in my, in my view. Hmm. Uh, we finish every podcast by uh, firing some quick fire talking points and questions at you. So the first one would be, what advice would you give to your younger self? Mm, this is a difficult one. Um... I would say to my younger self, don't just make do with something being done. The two key attributes I think that has that helped me in my career, or I've developed them over time, is patience and discipline. I was very lazy as a kid, and also the the idea of something just get, getting it finished was enough. Just finish it, and then you've done it, and then you can move on. No, that's not enough. Make it as good as you can be because it's a representation of you, whatever it is, whether you're writing, whether you're filmmaking, whatever it might be. And I suppose on the back of that, it's have a plan i suppose i was always as a kid the kind of person who would be i'll wing it you know what i mean and everything will be all right and if i didn't plan then if it goes wrong well i didn't plan if it goes right oh well i'm a genius you know what i mean but that doesn't really work in the real world i i need planning in order to be able to get get things done so those are the things i would tell myself and do a bit more work earlier in life maybe okay (laughs) can you pick a favorite place in sussex um well i i lived in st leonard's and i really like living there over in Hastings. They had the Kino Teatra Centre, which is absolutely fantastic. Some nice coffee shops and restaurants, and I enjoyed cycling across the seafront. So just just spending a bit of time in St. Leonard's, I think, was was nice living there for a bit. 
What are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? Um, well, I've just finished a book called The Last Hundred Days by Patrick McGuinness, which is a book about the fall of Ceausescu in Romania. My girlfriend is Romanian and we spent two weeks there and I read the book while we were in Bucharest, which is an amazing city, really. There's the Paris of the East. So that was an amazingly well, well written, um, almost semi-autobiographical novel and I've also I'm just about to finish Jonathan Coe's Middle England I don't know if you've it's a kind of book of the moment it's a sort of again it's a novelized take on the contemporary situation with since 2008 you know with the, the with Brexit and all of and Trump and all of that kind of stuff but set in a very you know a very specific story which which really taps into what it means to be English right now or the, all the contradictions of that could you describe your perfect weekend? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, it's it's difficult. It depends on the context of where you are. If I'm just at home, for example, I mean, I live in London. I'm, I'm I I moved there. We moved in together, me and my girlfriend, and my friends were down actually over the weekend, and we and I had kind of the the perfect weekend. We went we went up to the Tate and and saw the exhibition by Oliver Eliasson, and that was absolutely fantastic. A little bit of walking around, a little bit of uh, exercise. I play a bit of tennis. A bit of cycling again, just sort of combining that mixture of culture and exercise, and then with a bit of good food and and good good wine. So you know, enjoying the. I mean, I live in Islington, which is, you know, champagne socialist ground central. <laughs> um, so we've got the yeah, lots of amazing restaurants and stuff around there. And the Almeida Theatre, which I've been to a couple of times, and then lazy Sunday mornings at, at, in a breakfast cafe with the newspapers. Mm, I can nice. take that any day of the week. Yeah, very nice. Not uh, very exciting, but. There we are. That is pretty much a perfect weekend, though, isn't it? Um, and if you can invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? Oh, God, again, this is so hard. There's so many, isn't there? I mean, I suppose the way I took this question was I would want to speak to people who I think would have something interesting to say about what's going on right now, politically, socially, all of those kinds of things. So definitely one would be Christopher Hitchens, the the writer from the UK who became an American citizen, really polemic character. A lot of people, you know, don't like him, but just an, a fantastic writer, speaker, and thinker. Someone whose political views changed over time. He started off as a kind of quite a left winger Trotskyist, and ended up kind of, you know, as a neocon. So, and and a, a famous drinker and raconteur. So having him at a dinner party, and then again, perhaps to counterbalance that, somebody like Susan Sontag whose works on you know visual culture cinema photography politics education i've read loads and loads of her works absolutely stellar intellect and who could probably counterbalance christopher's uh, take on what was going on right now and then you know i'd really love to speak to somebody like stanley kubrick about what he would make of the contemporary cinematic universe you know this idea of films not being released into cinemas anymore or, or, or having to negotiate with things like Netflix and, and Amazon Prime. And also, does he think he could make his films now? You know, very controversial, a lot of his movies. I mean, um, you know, Clockwork Orange has just been re-released. I mean, I just don't think that a film like that would get made made today, you know, for various reasons. But just having somebody comment on cinema and its cultural status right now, someone like that, would I think would be quite fascinating. Thanks to Dario for his time. You can listen to the Cinematologist podcast by clicking the links in the podcast description. Next week, we'll be speaking to Bronte Ansel, senior lecturer in the Brighton Business School. Now, you can like and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. We're on most podcast apps, including Spotify and iTunes. Just search University of Brighton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>